Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. If you guys are watching this right now, you see in front of me this two-volume set on the book of Isaiah. It is a commentary written by one of my favorite scholars, Dr. John Oswald, who we're going to be talking with. He's a professor over at Asbury College. I'm sure he's got a ton of degrees that I don't even know about, but this guy right here is one of my favorites, not only because he is an excellent scholar who cares about what the Bible says, but the fact that he's an excellent preacher as well. And we're also going to be discussing his book, The Bible Among the Myths. I think one of the more important things for us as believers is to be able to look and compare the difference between the one true God and all of the false gods. And that's what we do in this interview right here with Dr. John Oswalt. Please welcome him to the show. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be with you. Yes, and praise God. I don't say this lightly. I have learned so much from your books, your teachings, so much of what you have. I guess it's really cool for me to sit here and and be able to talk with you today because I have read a lot of books from a lot of different scholars, but I've also been able to listen to some of your preaching. And sometimes in the scholarly world, the preaching and the teaching, you get a little more teaching than you do preaching. But with you, I feel like I'm always learning something and being encouraged. And I think that that comes from your heartbeat and, and the way that God has worked on on you. So I'd love for the audience just to know a little bit of your salvation story and also how you got into ministry and writing, I mean, I think is the best commentary on Isaiah that we have. Well, thank you. Um, I grew up in a Christian home, and my first memory of giving my heart to Jesus is when I was five years old in a camp meeting in a children's service. And uh, there, as a five-year-old, I knew where I wanted to go and where I didn't want to go. And I gave my heart to Jesus. But I really didn't have assurance. And again and again, through my childhood years, I can remember going to an altar and asking Jesus into my heart. And when I was about 13, I felt called into ministry. And when I was 13, that was okay. When I was 16, it was not okay. And when I went to college, I went knowing just one thing, what I would never be. I would never be a preacher. And then in my second year of college, I was at Taylor University in Indiana. They had a fall spiritual emphasis week, they called it. And a man came to preach. And I remember telling a girl that I had taken on a date to one of the evening services. When I listened to that guy, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. So I went to talk to him and very quickly, he said, John, I know what your problem is. I said, oh, he said, yeah, you're on the throne of your life and you're never gonna be content until Jesus is on the throne of your life. Would you like him to be on the throne of your life? And I said, well, yeah. He got very close to me and he said, John, is there something you won't do? And I just blurted it out. Oh, I won't be a preacher. 
He said, well, I guess that's the end of our conversation then, isn't it? I said, no, no, I, 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 I want him to be on the throne. And he said, John, how can Jesus be on the throne of your life if there's something he wants you to do and you won't do it? So in that moment, I said, yes. Apart from accepting Jesus and Mary and Karen, the best decision I've ever made in my life. And from that moment on, uh, my goal has been for Jesus to be on the throne of my life. And uh, so I, all the, all the best and brightest kids at Taylor at that point were headed to the mission field. And I bought the idea that if you're not called to stay, you better be prepared to go. And so I thought of myself as becoming a missionary. When I was in my senior year, one of my professors, a, a wonderful, talented, godly woman, said to me after class, John, have you considered going into teaching? And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to be a missionary. And she said, well, that's fine. You do what God wants, but I believe you have a gift for teaching. 30 years later, I was back at Taylor and we met and she smiled at me and she said, do you remember a conversation we had? And I said, I certainly do. <laughs> so I went to seminary at Asbury Theological Seminary where I'm teaching now. And uh, my second year in seminary, sort of the second year seemed to be significant. I was, I was reading through Nehemiah and I just got a very strong sense over about a week. I want you to teach. I want you to restore walls in some institutions. I thought of Taylor at the time and thought, well, okay. So really that was where the call came. And since that time, God has just confirmed it again and again. Uh, I heard one of my professors say years ago, well, if they wouldn't pay me to teach, I'd have to pay them to let me teach. And at the time I thought, oh yeah, tell me another one. But I understand it a little better now. It's, uh, it's who I am, it's what I do. And, and it's been just a glory to be able to do it teaching the word. Amen, and I have to say, Dr. Oswald, as I already mentioned uh, in the introduction, but I, I have just been so blessed by not only reading, but also listening to so many teachings. I told uh, the editor, Tommy, here today, I was like, man, I woke up early, went and get my workout, and I, I listened to everything at two times speed, so this was possible. I was like, I listened to five different sermons that you preached this morning, you know, and I was like, and they were all excellent, all a blessing, and I think a lot of it, it's so interesting how so much of it stems, I believe, by this distinction between the Holy One of Israel, the God of Israel, the God that we read about in the Old Testament and the New, but specifically to the Old Testament, especially when we talk about uh, modern Christianity today, uh, especially American Christianity today, it seems as though that so many people have gotten away from the understanding of who the Holy One of Israel is and almost yeah. pushed aside the Old Testament. But that's not the case with you. And it, it looks like when I listen to you speak that there's a reverence that comes out, and it comes out from reading the Old Testament. And, and would you would you agree with that assessment? I, I would. I would. I really, I really think that the great failure in the North American church is that we have got gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and failed to understand 
He's the son of the holy God. He is our savior. Bless his name. But if you separate him from the father that we see in the Old Testament, you're in deep trouble. You have turned him into a little friendly God who exists to take care of you. And that's not true. He is the holy God who made the world and he's come to save us, but to save us, to recreate us in his own likeness. I think that is amazing because this book right here in front of me, The Bible Among the Myths, I I think that for me, reading it alongside the Holy One of Israel, which is somewhat of a summary uh, of of your commentary on the book of Isaiah, and reading it alongside, there seems so many, I mean, I believe that it was so beautiful to read those together as I did personally, because... I could see kind of what's being played out there, showing that he's so different from all these other false gods. And when I read that, I I guess the best question I could get so we could kind of start talking about this book, and I think that every Christian should have this book and this book, and if you're reading through Isaiah, I would have this commentary. But specific to this one, the Bible among the myths, I would love to know what makes the Bible different than the myths. Well, how long do you have? (laughs) For you, as long as you want. (laughs) Fundamentally, I've I've said to students for many, many years, there are really only two worldviews. The biblical one and the other one. (laughs) The other one is the one that has basically ruled our world. This world is God. This cosmos is God. And there is nothing else. And over against that stands alone the Bible, which says, no, no, this cosmos is not all there is. There is one, a person, a person who stands outside of this cosmos. He transcends it. He is other than this cosmos. If you start there, it changes everything. If this world is God, then of course there is no unity. I mean, just look at this diverse world. Of course, there are many forces, social, psychological, natural, and all those are somehow or other divine. Of course, there are many gods. But if there's only one being who is other than this world, then there's only one God. And and again, I've loved to ask students across the years, how many monotheistic religions are there in the world? Say three, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And where do all three of those get their monotheism? From one single source, from the Bible. (laughs) Wow, in all the world, you'd think, now again, you can say, oh, well, the Egyptians, they thought of monotheism once, and and the Greeks, uh, they kind of thought of it, yeah, once, <laughs> and then quit and said, that's not going to work. But this Bible, from end to end, there is one God, there is only one, there are no others. Second thing, if this world is God, then the gods all have material forms and material has always existed. The foundation of everything is matter. So 
Of course, you're going to make your gods in material forms. Of course, they are necessarily matter and, quote, spirit and everything else sort of all garbled up together. And the Bible says, no, no. That which is divine is not part of this world and you can't make the divine in any shape of this world. Wow. Ask the same question. How many iconoclastic image breaking religions are there in the world? Three, same three. And guess what? They all got it from one single source. Again, I say, this is amazing. From end to end, the Bible says you cannot make your God in the shape of anything in this world. And then it goes on. And what's happening, you see, is paganism is creating the divine by analogy with this world. Therefore, next, the gods are profoundly sexual. They created the world through sexuality. They maintain the world through sexuality. We humans are obsessed with sex, so the gods are obsessed with sex. Again, around the world. And this astonishing old book says, no, no, the divine is not sexual. I like the term that one of my colleagues gave to me years ago. He is suprasexual. It's not that he's non-sexual. He is suprasexual. By that, I mean everything that is good about femininity is in him. Everything that is good about masculinity is in him. And they are undifferentiated. And he does not work sexually. Wow. Oh, how our age needs to hear this. Your identity is not determined by your sexuality. Your identity is determined by your relationship to God. So again, and, and you, can, you can just go down the list. If the gods are part of this world, then of course you can manipulate them magically. And the Bible never says magic won't work sometimes. It just says, don't you dare try to use it on God. <laughs> and so it goes. For the gods and this world, time is meaningless. Yesterday is today and today is tomorrow. It's an endless cycle going around and around and around. Coming from nowhere, going nowhere. Just look at nature. I mean, here I'm sitting in central Kentucky. We had a frost this morning. You look at the uh, almanacs and they'll tell you on average, central Kentucky has its first frost in the second week of November. We beat the average this year. We had it in the first week of November. But that's the way it's always been forever and ever and ever. So. In paganism, there's no purpose, there's no meaning, there's no direction. Uh, it's, it's funny, we hear a lot about progressives today. 
Where does the idea of progress come from? The Bible. Because we have a God who makes a promise today about tomorrow. And he fulfills his promises. We are going somewhere and he's taking us with him. Well, I could go on at, at length, but, but there it is. If you start with this world, this physical material world, and say, if you're smart enough, there are invisible spiritual realities in this world with us. Now, we North Americans have been stupider than the ancient Sumerians. We've said, no, 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 there are no spirits. There is no spiritual value. Slowly, we're figuring it out. And the Sumerians, 5,000 years dead, are saying, we thought you'd get there sooner or later. But if we say, this world is it, and there are invisible spiritual realities here, and you try to explain those spiritual realities by analogy with this world, you're going to end up the same place, whether you're in the outback of Australia or whether you're in the classrooms at Harvard. This book, for some unbelievable, ununderstandable reason, if you don't accept Revelation, stands in defiance of every one of them because they started a different way, not from this world to the invisible, but from the transcendent invisible to us. Well, that's enough of that. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And one of the things you also bring out, not only in the Bible among the myths, but also when you speak as well, you, you talk about the nature of some of these writings, some of the pagan writings versus the Bible, and also even with Islam as well, where there's a difference in the way that they are written, where one are more bare pronouncements versus, I guess, acting in time and space. So maybe you could uh, ferret that out yes. for us. That's exactly right. For the, for the uh, pagan world, you've just got to explain the gods on the analogy with nature. But the Bible says, no, no, God is not nature, and you can't explain him by analogy with nature. So how are we going to, how is God going to explain himself to us? A God who desperately wants to be known, who wants us to know him. How's he going to do that? He's going to have to break into our time and space with real people, not, not cardboard people, not, not images of humanity, with real people in real places. And so that's what people often say to me, oh, I don't understand the Old Testament. And I say, I'm not surprised <laughs> because it's written about a specific people in a specific place with a specific culture, much of which is foreign to us. But God did that on purpose because in the context of real life, Abraham is not every man, he's a unique person. David is not every man, he's a unique person. And it's in, in the context of their lives. And we can look at their lives and say, ah, yeah, I can see how that relates to me. No, I'm not David. David can be glad of that. But I can see the spiritual principles 
in real life form that apply to my real life form. And so that's um, supposedly Mahatma Gandhi said to the missionary East Stanley Jones, it can't be a holy book. It's just all these stories. Yes, that's exactly right. It is stories. Stories of real people in real places encountering the real living God and changing everything. Wow. I love that. I love that we, we get that, uh, just a greater understanding when it comes to that. Now, you also mention in the book that there are some similarities when we look at some of the practices, whether it's sacrifices or not. So maybe if you could show a little bit of the similarities yeah. and the distinctions. Yes, yes. Yeah, the God is very economical. <laughs> he uses anything that he can if it's not just utterly corrupted. He'll use that to make his point. So, for instance, you want to build a temple. Fine. How is a temple built in that time? Well, it's typically built in three parts. It's got a porch on the front. It's got an inner room. And then it's got an inner, inner room where the idol stands. So God says, hey, I can use that layout. So you've got the porch, you've got the holy place, and then you've got the holy of holies. But guess what? There's no idol in the holy place. What's in there? A beautiful gold box with figures of some sort over it. And what's in that box? Covenant tablets. God's sacred promises to his people and his people's sacred promises to him. Oh my goodness. This is not about manipulation. I can, I can give the idol some spiritual food and I can put the best Brooks Brothers suit on the idol and I can get the idol to do what I want. No, not a word of it. So, on the surface, you can say, well, hey, the Hebrew temple is just like the pagan temple. No, it isn't. It's not the similarities that define Israel. It's the differences. I've used the analogy. I'm not sure it's always a good one, but there are amazing similarities between me and my dog. Now, the dog has hair, but anyway... The dog has two eyes, the dog has two ears, the dog has two nostrils, the dog has a circulatory system, the dog has a respiratory system, the dog has a gastrointestinal system. Wow. The dog has four appendages, or well, the dog has five appendages, and I've lost one of mine, but. So the dog and I are the same, aren't we? Look at all those similarities. I dare to say the dog and I are not the same. It's not the similarities that define me and the dog. It's the differences. And it's the same there. Take sacrifices. The pagans had burnt offerings. The pagans had substitutionary sacrifices. They had altars. They had everything. So the Hebrews are doing the same thing. No, they're not. 
No, they're not. Because the pagans believed that, again, magic, if the god is upset with me, we'll do a magic ritual and I'll become the sheep and we'll kill the sheep and the god will say, okay, I got Oswald, that takes care of that. And the Israelite prophets say, if you dare to use sacrifices like that, you have cursed yourself. I, I love I love the opening chapter of Isaiah. I've, I've challenged my seminary students for 40 years to sometime use Isaiah 10 through 15, 1, 10 through 15 as a call to worship. <laughs> I don't think any of them have ever done it. I've never heard of anybody being run out of his church after the invocation. But God says, who asked you to come in here trampling my courts? Your sacrifices make me sick. I wish you would stop mixing sin and solemn assemblies. Mm. That would get worship service off to a good start, wouldn't it? <laughs> no. The form is similar, but for the Hebrew, the sacrifice is intended to represent a changed attitude. The sacrifice is intended to represent repentance and faith, Old Testament. And if it's not accompanied by repentance and faith, God says, I wish you wouldn't do it. Malachi says, who's going to shut the doors of this temple? I'm sick to death of what's going on in there. So again, we can say, hey, Hebrew sacrifices, pagan sacrifices, same thing. No, 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 no. It's not the similarities that define them. It's the differences. These sacrifices in themselves accomplish nothing. He is transcendent. You can't feed him. You can't clothe him. So what's happening? What's happening is we humans need visible ways to express spiritual realities. That's why I'm glad the church that I attend has a, an altar. <laughs> no, not the communion table. That's not the altar, but a railing in front where we can express physically our surrender to God and our dependence upon him. So in the same way, the sacrifice symbolizes that surrender, the surrender of my most valuable things. Think, think what an ox cost the average Hebrew family. Oh my goodness. We get upset about having to, having to give a tithe. No, this is a representation of the depth of our commitment to him. It's also a representation of the horrible cost of sin. You, the worshiper, have to slit that lamb's throat. Because of what I did, this poor innocent thing dies. Mm. Mm. So, and, and again, that can be repeated over and over again. Similarities on the surface but essential differences in the essence of what is taking place.
No, I think that's great. And you kind of segued us a little bit there from uh, speaking specifically about the Bible among the myths and also going over to Isaiah. And specific to that, before we even get into Isaiah, I think the best question to ask is, why should Christians study the Old Testament? And alongside of that, if we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, (laughs) you know, what is that going to happen to our orthopraxy as well? (laughs) The, The simplest answer is, the New Testament writers assume that their readers are, if they're Jews, understand the Old Testament deeply. It's a part of their very DNA. Or if they're Gentiles, they are learning it. They're coming to it. Because the New Testament is asking questions. Excuse me. The New Testament is giving answers to Old Testament questions. But it's like Jeopardy. You got to get the question right in order to understand the answer. Uh, I've often said, I, I, my mother has gone to heaven now. I love her, loved her, and love her very, very deeply. But all her life, she wrestled with her weight. Uh, she went up and down and in and out. So I said, okay, the question is 2,000 pounds. I'm sorry, the answer is 2,000 pounds. What's the question? How much weight did my mother lose during her lifetime? (laughs) So the question is, one thing, here's the answer the New Testament gives us, the cross. What is the question? For all too many North American Christians, the question is, How can my sins be forgiven and I go to heaven? Well, the first thing that ought to trouble us there are the pronouns. It's all about me. But in fact, if you read the Old Testament, that's not the question. Forgiveness is in the Old Testament, but it's not a major issue. A lot of people are surprised about that. And heaven... (laughs) It's only there by implication. What is the question that runs through the Old Testament? How in the world can unholy people ever share fellowship with the holy God? And the answer is the cross. It's the cross that makes it possible for the temple to be cleansed and the Holy Spirit to come in and fill the temple. Oh my. So that we get people saying, well, I've been forgiven, so I'll just wait till the bus comes and takes me to heaven. In the meantime, I'll live like hell and it'll be all right. Dear God, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. So the Old Testament gives us the questions to which the New Testament gives us the answer. So you need to know what the real questions are. (laughs) But second, the Old Testament provides the essential foundations for the new. Justification. What in the world is that? It's an Old Testament idea. Sanctification. What's that? It's an Old Testament idea. 
if you're going to understand what's going on in the New Testament, you've got to understand what's going on in the Old. Third, the Old Testament provides the complement to the New, or we could say it the other way, the New Testament provides the complement to the Old. It's interesting that the major points of the Old Testament tend to be the minor points of the New, and the minor points of the Old are the major points of the New. The, it's What it's saying is, did you get the main points? Good, good, okay. Now, let's talk about the other side of that picture. The Old Testament, as I've already said, talks to us about the transcendence of God. He is other than we. He is other than this world. And the New Testament comes along and says, and guess what? The other has become imminent. Not I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. He has become present. Now unhitch those. Oh, God is a nice little God who lives under my bed to say, that's all right, honey. He's a great grandpa in the sky who's kind of blind. I said to students for many years, if the little God who lives under your bed to answer your prayers loves you, that's no big deal. But if the God who could fry you alive by looking at you loves you, that's good news. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen to that. That's good I, news. I could not agree more. <laughs> so that that's one. Again, you get... He is the Holy One. His character is of such a nature that we can hardly, hardly imagine it. And the Holy One is love. Oh, my. And you can go on down the list of he is the one who is absolutely right. He is the one who is absolutely true. And the New Testament is going to parallel those and say, Yes, praise God, and, <laughs> and it's going to link the two together so that the two testaments are designed to be complementary. No, we don't want to live merely with transcendence, the one who is absolutely other than we, the one who is terrifyingly, horrifyingly holy. No, but the one who is present and is love is the transcendent Holy One. Ah, good news. Good news. Amen. Amen. Yeah, it makes me think, obviously, of Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. Uh, you know, regarding regarding that exact nature of, of God. Just so beautiful to bring it all together and to see that. And you know, when I think, yes. He is the one who lives in the high and holy place, and with those who are contrite of heart. Amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for actually saying the verse that I referenced there <laughs> to back me up. But no, I think it is it is so important for us to to really grasp that 
and understand that. And one of the things that you mentioned as a theme throughout Isaiah, and, and I love this because I believe you bring it out as a reason for one, believing that Isaiah is the one who wrote Isaiah and that there really was one author overall for Isaiah because there's been a lot of different views and so forth. But a theme that was brought throughout that I think is missing a lot, as you mentioned already, and I've heard you speak to this, that that today, that in terms of Christian theology, it's almost in a crisis, you know, speaking of this Old Testament, New Testament, but the idea of judgment and hope throughout Isaiah and the continuity there, I, I just, when I heard you speak to that and, and read you speak to that, I think that was so important. So I'd love for our listeners to to hear about this idea of Isaiah and the continuity between judgment and hope. Yes, yes. For the for the Israelites of Isaiah's time, their idea of judgment was, well, God's going to destroy us, and, and that can't happen, so... God's going to deliver us. We are not going to experience any punishment. And if we were to experience punishment, then obviously everything would be over. The promises would have failed, the covenant promises, the promises he gave to Abraham. So obviously we cannot experience judgment. And Isaiah says, guess what? For you people, the only hope is through judgment. Oh my goodness. They had declined to the point where unless God judged them, they would disappear off the face of the earth in total corruption. They would be absorbed back into paganism. So the, the hope for them was not to escape judgment, but the hope for them was through judgment because God, God is going to keep his promises. <laughs> they thought that if they were to lose their land and go into exile, that would mean God had broken his promises. And God says, no, no, no. My promises are a lot bigger than a piece of land. My promises are a lot bigger than that. I am going to keep you through exile. I'm going to refine you through exile and bring you back to genuine hope. And I think that's, I think that's so relevant to us. I think I <laughs> tend to think, well, if, if God loves me, then I will not experience any difficulty. And God may well be saying to me, Oswald, the only way I can do what I need to do in your life is by allowing difficulty to come, by allowing stress, by allowing things that you want to be delivered from. If I were to deliver you from those things, you would not get the benefit that I'm trying to give you. I think that's really hard for, for me, <laughs> for us to grasp. But that's what the book keeps saying. No, no, no. Judgment. And this is, again, something I've said to students now for many years. Judgment is never God's intended last word. It may be, but that's up to us. 
It may be his last word, but that's not what he means. He intends that judgment will be for the purpose of refining. He intends that the fires of judgment will melt down the ore of our lives so that he can pour off the dross, the scum, and be left with the pure, pure gold. This is not original to me by any means. I think it's been used for a thousand years, but I still love it. How does the assayer know that the gold is pure? When he can look into the crucible and see his face reflected in the molten gold. If the gold could cry, if the ore could cry while the fire is going, getting hotter and hotter, it would. Help me, help me, God, you must hate me. Help me, God, get me out of here. I don't want to be melted. And God says, I love you too much not to melt you. So judgment and hope are inseparable in Isaiah. And I, I've come to believe in the Bible. <laughs> Amen. I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that you bring out as well is the servant in Isaiah and, and the servant and also how Israel would be used as this light to people like myself and I believe you uh, that are Gentiles. So maybe you could speak to that as well. Yeah. I, one of the things about the book of Isaiah is this, what I call bipolarity. Uh, now, when you talk about people being bipolar, that's not necessarily a good thing. But there's, in so many of the ideas in the book, there are two sides. So judgment and hope. And, and it's the same here with exaltation and lowliness. On the one hand, and, and again, it's the, the book is so wonderfully complex, but by and large, the picture of the Messiah in the first part of the book is exaltation. He's going to be high. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be, though he begins as a child, though he rules not like tyrants rule, but he's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up. In the second part of the book, no, he's going to be the lowly one who's going to wonder whether, in fact, his work was in vain or not, but nevertheless, who's going to be faithful to God. And so there are those who wanting to see the wanting to magnify the differences between the two parts of the book will say, well, you've got two radically different, unrelated ideas of the Messiah. I don't think so at all. God says, humble yourselves that I may exalt you. Yes. Exalt ourselves as humans. Put ourselves at the top of the heap, and suddenly the heap is meaningless. <laughs> if we're the measure of all things in this universe, this universe is in bad trouble. Exalt ourselves, and we become nothing. But take the lowest place. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Let me be one of your servants. And he says, oh, come up here and sit beside me on the throne. Wow. What a God. And this, of course, 
plays right into the New Testament. How do you win? You lose. How do you live? You die. Everything that we humans tend to think tends to be wrong. <laughs> and we have to be brought into that understanding. And so, how will the Messiah save the world? Oh, by assuming a throne and waving a scepter and commanding an army. Yes, in the end. In the end. But not along the way. He will save the world by losing his own life. He will save the world by giving himself away. He will show the world that power comes from character, not from assumption. <laughs> so that, again, there, there's, here's another of these bipolarities. Exalt yourself and you'll humiliate yourself. Take the lowest place and God will raise you. You're not my slave, you're my child. Wow. That's beautiful, man. I just absolutely love talking with Dr. Oswald about this. And one of the things that you have brought out, and I've heard you speak to this a lot, is that so many people, when they look at salvation as a whole, they look at it as a, a birth certificate. But that the language in the New Testament, and sometimes in the Old as well, is of something entirely different. And so I'd love you to speak to that. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, and I guess here again, I would say it, it's really it's really foundational in the Old Testament. What is God looking for? He's looking for a relationship. You know, I I, I really think Genesis seventeen one is is terribly important. After the tragedy of Ishmael, after Abraham has tried to save the world through his own potency. <laughs> And then there are 13 years of silence between the end of Genesis 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. Now, I can't say that God didn't speak to him any time during those years, but if he did, it wasn't very significant. Now, 13 years later, God shows up, and man, what a, what a moment that must have been for Abraham. Oh, he hasn't forsaken me. It's not all over. And God renews his covenant, and then he says, Abram, walk before me. And I think that means simply walk in my presence. Walk in my presence and be whole. King James says perfect. The modern translations, which are terrified of perfect, uh, fall over themselves to find some other word. But it's really the idea of be what you were meant to be. Uh, to me, that <laughs> to me that capsulizes encapsulates salvation. What is it to walk with my heavenly Father and become everything I was meant to be at any given point along the walk? Wow. So the Old Testament, and and this is true in the Old Testament and the New Testament, three quarters of the occurrences of the verb walk are metaphorical. They, and and the, the modern translations, I think a little unfortunately, 
will explain the metaphor and they will say live. Uh, I happen to be teaching in a, in a Bible study here on the book of Ephesians. And in chapters four and five, five times God says walk. Walk in unity. Walk in holiness. Walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. Wow. <laughs> I've got to be careful not to preach that sermon. But, but there it is. Salvation is not a position. Oh, it is a position. Thank God it's a position. But it's not merely a position. And that's why the New Testament often uses the verb of continuity. Be being saved. You are being saved. Salvation is not a moment in time when we accept Christ. Salvation begins at a moment in time when we accept Christ, and then, then is carried out in this walk, this lifelong walk with him, where we are steadily becoming what we were meant to be, and that is transformed into his character. And again, the tragedy of North American evangelicalism today is that we have forgotten this whole aspect that salvation is a life. It's a walk. And again, I, I, just, I just love that imagery. I get up in the morning and there's God's hand saying, come on, Johnny, let's go for a walk. And I'm going to walk with him today. I think that's just amazing. And uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up, I know we don't got that much time left on this one, but I, I wanted to bring out the idea of walking in holiness as well. And and so many people, and you already mentioned this in terms of modern translations and so forth, because um, I think so many people hear holiness and be holy as Father in Heaven is holy, and they, they get scared. They're like, this is sinless perfectionism or something else they throw out there. But walking in holiness is, is something completely different. I think you speak to this in, in, with great wisdom, uh, and I've heard you talk on this subject a lot in relation to how you relate it to your wife and so forth, your marriage, and, and I think it's it's wonderful. So maybe just as um, something to push people along and saying, let's walk in holiness, I'd love to hear a word from you. Yeah, it's what is holiness? Holiness is God's character, a character that is marked by love, unselfish love, a character that is marked by absolute faithfulness, dependability, a character that is marked by being just, by carrying out God's principles in relation to other people, a character that is marked by doing what is right for other people. It's all other-oriented. Uh, if you look at Ephesians and Colossians and see what it is that we're supposed to put on, it's all in relation to other people. And that's God's character. God is totally other-oriented. And he means for me to be like that. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a life where we are not by our effort. No, 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 no. But by the power of the Holy Spirit and our cooperation with the Spirit are being transformed into his likeness. To become lovers, and love means choosing the best for another 
whatever the cost to myself. Yes, we can become that kind of person. I, I, I cringe a little bit when I hear people say, oh, I'm just human, of course I'll sin. Really? And this is where, Chad, you, you give me the clue here. I, I, I've really thought about this in terms of, would I say that to Karen? Would I say, well, Karen, you know, I'm, I'm just human. I, I'm just a male. And, and we males are, we're, we're, we're born <laughs> adulterers. So, you know, I love you. I, I really care about you a lot. And you're, you're first in my life. And, but, you know, I, I'll, I'll sleep with some of my students this week. Uh, it, it's just a guy thing, you know. Don't feel bad about it. Would I say that to her? I hope she'd slug me. And will I say it to God? Now, now hear me. I don't mean that we are able to live flawless lives. I don't mean that. I'm not a perfect husband. But I want to say, if there are areas of my life that I know hurt him and insult him and grieve him, Am I going to say, well, God, I'm just human. I'll do that. No, no. In the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, I think this is what first John is saying. I'm writing to you that you don't sin. If you should sin, we've got an advocate. But that's not. <laughs> that's not writing you a blank check and say, well, I'll sin every day. No, no. Will I fall short of God's perfection every day? Yes. But will I consciously, intentionally break his heart, do the things I know he hates? God help me know. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I want to walk with him. No, I think that is absolutely beautiful. And I think it's so important for people to hear that message today because it's for some reason, so missed, and it could be, as we had mentioned, the unhitching of the Old Testament and getting away from the holiness of God. And, and I think it's so important for us to have these conversations. And Dr. Oswald, I could talk to you about this forever. I could talk to you about Isaiah forever. I, I Guys, I want to encourage you, check out the books that we have here. The Holy One of Israel, if you're like, hey, I'm not that scholarly, maybe I can't get into that deep of, of a book with the two parts uh, 1 through 39, and then as, and then the following chapters as well to 66 of your commentary. But, hey, the Holy One of Israel is, are different, basically, essays of the book. And I absolutely love the Holy One of Israel. I love the Bible Among the Myths. I love the work you're doing, Dr. Oswald. And I just want to say we are so blessed to have you on the Good Fight Radio Show. Thank you. Let me mention another book that I've written, Called to Be Holy. Called to be holy, which is a study of holiness through the Bible and arguing that, hey, it's not something weird and strange that only super Christians are involved with, but it's something for all of us. Called to be holy. Called to be holy. And I guess no better way than to finish up this interview. So let's, that we are called to be holy, Dr. Oswald. And I want to thank you so much for sitting down with us and explaining a lot of these great, great truths to us. Thank you so much for the privilege. All right. And God bless you guys. 
You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.